Hey guys, this is Richard jumping in real quick to let you know that you're listening to part one of my conversation with Dr. Ritesh Mehta. Part two will be on the feed soon, so do keep an eye out for that. Now, please enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome to another special episode of Media Review Pod. My name is Richard Santiago, and I call upon you all to join me as I venture back into Middle-earth. I am doing a 20th anniversary retrospective of the entire movie trilogy, and this one is just one of several episodes that I'm going to be doing for you guys. And tagging along for this one is none other than film and TV journalist, film festival programmer, a returning guest on Media Review Pod, and fellow Tolkien enthusiast, Dr. Ritesh Mehta. Welcome back. Thank you. Oh my God, I hadn't heard doctor in a long time. What? <laughs> uh, Hollywood has just like, you know, it has erased certain parts of my identity. So <laughs> that's all I'll say. Okay. Uh, but thank you for having me. This is wonderful. I'm so glad to be back after two years. Yeah, yeah. This uh, this is really exciting. And um, especially for Tolkien, which you will hear us yeah, both of us are going to really geek out on Tolkien today. So yeah, yeah. a lot of quotes coming up. <laughs> well, here, here's the thing. I think you're one of the. Uh, I think I speak Tolkien, Tolkien per se, with about like two or three people, and you're one of them. So it's it's oh, always great. always really engaging when when I when we just nerd out, uh, just texting back and forth about Tolkien. It's always fun. So I really appreciate you being here. And I'm really excited to see what uh, what this has in store for us. Me too, and thank you. All right. So again, this is just one of several episodes that I'm going to be doing to commemorate the 20th anniversary of The Lord of the Rings. And in this one, we'll be talking all about adaptation and how to do this epic, sprawling thing from the page to the screen. Um, after that, we'll be doing a deep dive into the rest of Tolkien lore, including maps, geographies, and perhaps a bit of the Silmarillion, who knows, you know, as we may speculate on the future of the new Amazon series based on the second age of Middle-earth. But before we do any of that, how about if we begin this much like the movie trilogy itself? Let's do it with a prologue of how we first entered the world of Tolkien. Take it away, Ritesh. So I came to the movies first and then the books. And it was 2001 in December. I was in Mumbai and I, I wanted to hang out with my cousins. Uh, I have 14-year-old cousins at the time, 14, um, who... Uh, you know, I was close to, and he. I wanted to hang out with him and his brother, Rehan, who was five years younger than him. And I asked him, hey, guys, what do you want to do this week? And they're like, there's this film coming out that we can't go alone to the movie theater. Can you take us with you? I'm <laughs> like, okay, I'd rather meet in person and, like, you know, go to a restaurant or something. And I asked which film, and he said, Lord of the Rings. I'm like, hmm, I haven't heard of that. Who is that? What is that? And he's like... Um, I think she'll just come with us, <laughs> take us, trust us on this one. So I went in blind, not knowing what it was. I didn't even know it was fantasy, I don't think. I took my parents with me because it was just like going to be a family outing. So it was like my 14-year-old cousin, his 9-year-old brother, myself, and my parents. And my parents also didn't know it was going to be fantasy. And they walked out midway, I think, somewhere in, like, <laughs> I think, when like, in Farmer's Maggot in Farm Maggot's field because they didn't know what fantasy was or they didn't they couldn't relate to it yeah so it was just like my cousins and I and that was the starting because I think it took me I was in fact just texting with him yesterday asking him what he remembered and he said it took you a while even after the after you watched the fellowship in 2001 December um, at the single screen Regal Theater in Mumbai in South Mumbai like that still exists I think um you know, there weren't really any multiplexes back then. Um, and he said that it took it took me a while to kind of get into it. Like, it took me, like, two or three months. And then I began talking about it more with him. And that's why he invited me back to watch The Two Towers. So, and then by then, like, the Oscars had, 
announced the nomination. Then I was like really into Oscars back then, mm-hmm. and still now. And but that's when I realized, okay, that's this is real, like legit. And then I got the books and I read them. I think in two thousand and three to four, I have a distinct memory of reading them. Like I was in Miami for like a trade show and like like the stock difference between like Collins Avenue, South Beach, Miami. And like reading Tolkien, like the density of Tolkien, I still remember that in like this tiny hotel room that I was in. And then between 2004 to like 2003 to six, I watched, I watched the films. I I kind of, I don't want to say it, but like I got pirated DVDs. I'm sorry. Like back then, (laughs) this was like more commonplace in Mumbai. I I haven't done it since 2006, but of, of Lord of the Rings. And I watched the films about, like 30 or 40 times I would watch them every day going to sleep and they just completely became such a big part of me and my imagination Uh, I even wrote papers in undergrad about it like I wrote a paper for a cognitive science class about like justifying how like relying on Lord of the Rings uh, as like an external brain kind of helped me with my daily life and my daily struggles uh, even this is funny i renamed everyone on my nokia phone <laughs> all my contacts every, but with a person from lord of the rings so like every like if you just read my contacts <laughs> it's like all lord of the rings and i wrote a paper justifying that how this actually is helping me so you know so like that's my history i kind of really geeked out and I, all my friends were always wondering who am i on lord of the rings and i would tell them and then I would begin to explain the characters and they'd get bored. And I realized, do I have any real friends? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And then uh, in grad school, I wrote this book. Uh, I kind of co-authored this, uh, this digital book at USC with uh, amazing media scholar who was my advisor, uh, Henry Jenkins and Aaron Riley. And we kind of wrote about like how to engage with texts. And one of the texts was Moby Dick. And one of the texts was, my contribution was Lord of the Rings and in particular Gollum and I wrote a chapter on like how Gollum was introduced in the two towers, like the use of camera and cinematic juxtaposition, mm-hmm. how the camera switches from like two characters to one character, to how Peter Jackson really made did some amazing things with Gollum. Then I talked about the gaps in the wanderings of Gollum, and I talked about the the violence in the Smeagol and Deagle scene. And all of this was for educational purposes, but basically my point is that I went from being completely uh unaware of Tolkien's existence. Tolkien was brought to me via Fellowship of the Ring in December 20, uh, 2020, December 2001, sorry. And, you know, then I went on towards more intellectual, academic, educational endeavors, and um, now I'm here with you. So that's my journey so far. All right. Well, that's, that was, that was awesome. Um, I'll, I'll give you my, my version real quick. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to watch, um, this short movie. Oh, uh, yeah, it's kind of short. It's the Hobbit movie. I don't know if you've seen it. It's the animated Hobbit movie. And I I used to enjoy it a lot, but I had no idea that it connected to anything. It was just a cool movie where there was this weird thing called the Hobbit, and he put on a ring, he disappeared, and there was a dragon at the end. That, that, that was basically the gist for me as a kid. And so this movie was, it was playing, I don't know if it was HBO or the Disney Channel or whatever, but it was playing constantly at my house. Then one day, um, I was uh, about 19 or 20 years old, and I saw, I was coming out of the multiplex, and I saw a poster where Elijah Wood was front and center, and he had his hand in the foreground with the ring and in the bottom I think the copy said something Hobbit or something and I go oh cool so they're they're adapting that thing that that animated movie that I saw cool because there's the ring and it says Hobbit so I kind of put in two and two together but then at the bottom I think there was the uh, the website the Lord of the Rings movie.com or something like that and I go, what the, what's the Lord of the Rings? And so began my quest to find out what the hell was going on. Was The Hobbit part one of the Lord of the Rings? Was it something separate? And 
all throughout this time, I don't know if you remember Borders. You remember the bookstore Borders? Mm-hmm. So they had they had promos for the Lord of the Rings books and everything having to do with the Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth. And this was just, it, it was just candy for me. So I went into Borders and I started just reading. I bought books. I bought the Lord of the Rings. I, I got The Hobbit. I, I delved into the history of Middle Earth. I, I read the Silmarillion. I, I just went deep into this entire thing. So before the first movie came out, I had finished The Lord of the Rings, which I read first before I read The Hobbit. Um, and then by the end of uh, 20, uh, 2003, which is when The Return of the King came out, I had already read The Silmarillion. So it was just boom, 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 boom. And I think throughout those 20 years, I have been reading on and off again from Tolkien uh, nonstop because I, I just I just enjoy being in that world. I enjoy um, not only the story, but his um, his his techniques, his literary techniques, the way he does rhyme, because that's something that's probably uh, uh, very obviously missing from the movies, which is the fact that mm-hmm. he enjoys a song. <laughs> Uh, so the Lord of the Rings is full of songs and lays and poems. Um, so I enjoy that as well. Um, and then just the history, because that's that's the way I see this. I see this as just an alt history of how the world came into being, um, much like like uh, like the Bible or um, mm-hmm. or the Torah or, you know, all these yeah. Seminal mm-hmm. books that explain the beginning of the world and what happened before and the wars that happened in between. That's how I see this entire Middle Earth saga. Um, and to this day, I, I still enjoyed the, these three films, even though I acknowledge that they do have some flaws. Um, they are probably uh, three of my favorite films of all time. No doubt. Mine too. I think um, they're like, yeah, they're in my top. In terms of like epic films, they're my favorite for sure. And um, they've just been such a big influence, like the films, the books. I mean, the films is because I've watched them so much. Mm-hmm. They're just ingrained in my body in different ways. Like, you know, and I keep like every now and then I just think of the characters that I'm like walking in the dreary streets of Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just makes me happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as as a fan of the book, what does this movie mean to you? It it what it means to me is like so many things, but it I'm just really grateful for Peter Jackson's visual world building. Mm-hmm. Um it's just kind of really outstanding and in the 20 years since like I think there's like to in my mind there's almost like nothing that comes close. Uh they're like they've been very good and well done world building maybe in other media and like world building is something that many people can claim to in science fiction and world uh, and fantasy but i think these books and these films are seminal and what i what and peter jackson's reverence for and interpretation of the source material is just really outstanding and for me like like one of the biggest influence like the biggest thing that he did i think uh, the films came out at a time that the technology also allowed yeah. for the rendering characters, especially Smeagol and Gollum. And uh, I'll be all, forever grateful that we we discovered Andy Serkis because of the cause of Peter Jackson. Yeah, because absolutely. Gollum is difficult. Like there've been like uh, renderings of Gollum from Tolkien fans, you know, way before, uh, like in, in the nineties as well, in the in the, in, in the last century. But uh, and they were very like interesting, mystical, uh, majestic, religious depictions of Gollum. But uh, what Andy Serkis brought was just something quite extraordinary. So for the for me, the movies are not just like a great story of a great journey and a great um, quest, but also just, um, they're also kind of fables and morality tales that I really enjoy. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I have to agree. Um, for me, as as a fan of the book, um, I was I was in awe that they were basically able to bring to life something that, in in my ignorance, wh- while I was reading, um, as, especially towards the latter part of the Lord of the Rings, um, things that. In my ignorance, I just thought were unfilmable. I was thinking, how in the heck are they going to make ants not look hokey? Right? <laughs> how how are they going to um, do the Pelennor fields? Because what what the audience needs to understand is, twenty years ago, doing something as sprawling as this movie was in terms of war. You had Braveheart. You know, you had movies like that, but nothing in the scope that that uh, this this movie, this trilogy took on. Um, and like you said, thanks to the technology that was available to them and some was even created for this movie, uh, we were able to feast on the Pelennor Fields. Um, and then as, as a moviegoer, Thinking back, uh, the experience for me was uh, completely different from probably anybody else because while these movies came out, my siblings and I just watched them together. We were uh, we were fans, and we we also read the books more or less at the same time. So we were we were very into this entire world, and by the time that the Return of the King came out. We we had the Fellowship of the Ring extended edition and the Two Towers extended edition on DVD, and so that morning yeah. we had timed it right. So we already had the tickets to go to the Return of the King when it was gonna premiere at night, and so that morning we put Fellowship of the Ring extended edition back to the Two Towers extended edition and then we had like 30 minutes before we had to rush to the theater and this is before before assigned seats so we had to make a line so it was it was it was intense but it was great it's a great it's a great memory one of my favorite memories what, of going to the yeah, movies what better way to spend 12 hours of your day to just watch to the kind of know, marathon right? and then wait for the extended edition of the next film and not just the extended edition. I would watch the extended edition with the commentaries. Like they had so many commentaries, and I have the box set. Mm-hmm. Like it's the only box set that I own. Like I got, like I, sp- I, 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 you know, I spent the cash on it, and I would listen to Peter Jackson's commentary. I would listen to, um, like they, they had like at least two or three layers of commentaries. Like, to, um, like I think the cast was there. Sometimes some of the like the major crew were there, mm-hmm. and then all the amazing bonus stuff and the bonus scenes and yeah. it was just outstanding what they accomplished and to, to think that they shot most of this movie in 99 all together i mean if you read like the business case study of like how the producer had to convince the studio to kind of but for this like no one had done this yep. like he was proposing to as you said uh film something that many considered unfilmable uh, he was like, and he was relatively unknown. Peter Jackson. Like, he had done Heavenly Creatures in '94 with Kate Winslet, which was like a tiny genre film. But then, you know, he was able to use his chops, and he was able to sell the film and his vision. And I wish I was like a fly on the wall for that meeting, or all those meetings, because I don't know how he did it. Like, it is incredible. And of course, they spent like, you know, they had a year each for post production for each of the three films, which they fully needed. But think about like the New Zealand. VFX industry that's come about yep. because of because of Peter Jackson. Uh, it's pretty outstanding. Well, and and that's that's another thing. As as a filmmaker, um, I I think of of all the, the 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 things that they had to go through before they even had the money to make the movie. Um, it it shows tenacity. It shows perseverance. It shows vision, um, not only from Peter Jackson as the director, but also from from his team of producers and, and writers, that they were able to say, okay, this is exactly what we want to do. And to think that this movie almost didn't even happen as, as three. 
because uh, they they were stuck at Miramax and Miramax wouldn't budge because they didn't have the money to make th two movies, which was the, what they were proposing to do. Um, and so they said, all right, so take take the movie, see if some other studio wants to do it, but they have to pay Miramax $20 million that we have, have already invested. Um, and it, I think it was just luck, man, that they were able to get a meeting at New Line and and have Bob Shea say, why are you making two movies if you if there are three books? Um, yeah. It's, it's amazing that they were able to do it. And the other thing that I find amazing is that if you, if you kind of separate the budget that they had into the three movies that they shot back to back, they, they did it for less than, less than what, a hundred million dollars when, when they actually went in, into production, they did three movies back to back. It's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. It is. It is really is. Like my mind is getting blown even as I think about it. And 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 the other thing is, if if you kind of compare, um, just pr bringing this movie, the these three movies, uh, to life was a real big challenge. But to make the book, Tolkien took seventeen years to write it. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing that s such an epic came out of this. But not only that, that it connects to every other thing that he was writing at the same time. Because uh, he he originally wanted to publish The Silmarillion, which he never actually finished. Mm -hmm. And that's where most of his lore comes from. Because all of this other history that he had already created, and he was just kind of injecting it into this novel. Um, and just just think, investing 17 years of your life into this work um it's it, it's like it's like going to war as well you know you, you're you're i i bet that he was fighting with his publishers as to what goes in what goes out um because originally they wanted just a regular sequel to the hobbit which was a kid's story and then they give i know he gives them this thing that has so many references to other stuff that they don't even know what he's talking about um, it's it's just mind-boggling, mind-boggling. I mean, his son, Christopher Tolkien, spent most portion of his life just figuring out and sifting through the voluminous material that Tolkien had done. We, like, we know that Tolkien is a linguist and uh, like you know one of the most interesting linguists from the 20th century. Also, he is a fantastic cartographer. He had so many kind of... Uh, sketches of the worlds that he was building. If you look at like the earliest renderings of Middle Earth, like they were so different, and his thinking really evolved over time about what, um, how 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 Middle Earth changed across the different ages, and so all the lore that he was building influenced his car his cartography and his use of language, and coming up with the names and coming up with what Elvish sounds like and like the language of Mordor that must not be uttered here yeah. sounds like. <laughs> um, so it's, I mean, yeah, 17 years it's going to war, but it's not the best kind of war. Like I would die to be eligible to be a soldier in that war. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I also think it's incredible that, like you said, he's a linguist. He created like three languages. Uh, it's... Just, just, just like that. Yeah, it, we say just like that, right? <laughs> but I'm pretty sure know, he, yeah. it, it, it took him uh, quite a while. But, but the thing is, he enjoyed doing that, um, and and it shows. It shows he enjoyed uh, uh, doing all all these maps, and it shows when you read these books, you can you can picture vividly where these characters are, and you can follow along through the maps where they are. Because he knew exactly how the landscapes were. Uh, he, he knew exactly the path that these characters were supposed to take in order to, to complete the journey. Um, and uh, that's, that's another thing that, that just keeps me in awe. Let me ask you, since you watched the books, I mean, since you read the books before you watched the movies, mm -hmm. what was like the one big shock or... Well, not, not, if not shock, something of interest that hit you when you saw the visual rendering. Well, I... Okay. So, 
I have I have two answers. One is I was kind of spoiled with um with all the the, uh, the renderings from other people because mm-hmm. like I said, when I went into Borders, I just I I devoured everything that I saw that had the Tolkien name. So paintings from Tolkien himself, uh from John Howe, uh from um Anon Lee so you mm-hmm. had you had so much stuff sketches and 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 inspirations um that while I was reading it all came came into my mind now what I didn't expect was that two of those so Alan Lee and John Howe worked on the movie I had no idea okay. when I saw the movie and so when I saw Orthak I said I've seen that, but not like that, and it looks awesome. Um, and just looking at Hobbiton, when I first saw Hobbiton, oh my god, it, it was it was incredible. It was incredible. I I because I knew it wasn't CG. It looked real. It felt real. They were there. It was real grass. You, it was very tactile. Um, the doors, the the circular doors. It's just everything was. It just came to life. Yeah, and the genius ways in which uh, Peter Jackson and his team used, um, like, the kind of manipulated scale to give, like, oh, yeah. the different sizes, like, they kind of suggest, like, how Gandalf, when, like, how Ian McKeldin and, um, oh, my God, I'm going to forget the name of the actor who played Bilbo, Ian, um, something, Bil- oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Oh, yeah, Ian Holm, uh, like, Ian Holm. Ian Holm, you know, in, in that, in, in Bag End, in 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 Holmes' house, that that just visually like how the tables looked and how they manipulated it, like they used some simple craftsmanship, but those simple ideas came out of just like being extremely engaged with wanting to do justice to what what Tolkien wanted to do with these characters and wanted to suggest, and uh, that's where kind of like engaging with the text and engaging with craft kind of really came together in really genius ways. Yeah. Yeah, and that that first scene where uh, Frodo meets Gandalf, and he throws oh himself yes. on and top of Gandalf. Yeah, it's it's so well made, so well made because it's just simple, simple visual trickery. It completely worked. Even twenty years later, I find it fully authentic. All right, so let's move into our adaptation section now. Before we start this, I I want to make a quick disclaimer that. We are by no means experts on this subject. Uh, we will have this chat and try to analyze some of it. But this is basically just Dr. Ritesh Mehta and me nerding out on a subject that we love. All right. Um, I also want to point out that we will be talking about Middle Earth films in general. So there will be spoilers ahead, and you have been warned. Let's talk a little bit about the Frodo Sam Smeagol journey and relationship. Sure. Um, for me, this is like one of the like uh, I don't know. Like I feel like it's my alternative identity. This relationship amongst the three of them in the movies, but like for me, Smeagol and Gollum and I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it. Like, I think it is my favorite character in cinematic history. Like, this is like really? a very large statement coming from me. But I, if I could, like, take with my ashes at the end of my life like, something off Smeagol and Gollum, I would. Because it's strange that I empathize with this character that many people, I mean, like, you know, like the received viewers that one must load Smeagol Gollum, Smeagolum, as I call, mm. call them. Uh, but it's interesting now that we use pronouns. What would Smeagol's pronouns be? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I'll, gonna, I'll talk about, I'll give you a few, a quick overview of why I think I love this relationship, like the reasons why I love it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it, I think there are reasons for the world that we're living in now, especially. Um, they're all hobbits, first of all. You know, like they had different origins. Like uh, Smeagol was from there, was a different kind of hobbit, uh, like, Frodo and Sam are hobbits of the Shire, 
and they were born later. Smeagol was born in the Third Age, but in like around 2400, I think, whereas Frodo was born in like 2968, I want to say, um, of, the, of the Third Age. But uh, Smeagol was a river hobbit. So the, the, the river hobbits really loved the Anduin and they loved building boats out of reeds. And that's that's that was their little playpen, whereas the hobbits of the Shire loved everything that the Shire, the Shire offered. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact, I think the fact that they were all hobbits, but over time through the lore of Middle Earth, they were ensconced in the larger histories, right from the creation of, um, of, uh, of Aman and the Valar and Valinor and, you know, all the destruction that happened in Middle Earth um, at the end of the first age, at the end of the second age, they somehow inherited that history. The journey in the Lord of the Rings is deeply comes out of these previous wars. And the fact that they're all hobbits taking under, undertaking this journey, first of all, it, it, it was just worth remembering and mentioning that people become warped over time. And sometimes that that's partly their choices, but also partly the history that they are, you know, Smeagol discovers a ring through Deagle. And you know, like, yes, it is Smeagol's nature, and spoiler alert, he kills his friend on his birthday, but, you know, it was a ring, and the ring has this, this crazy history and lore. What I also like about this relationship is the kindness. Uh, there was this fantastic line that told, uh, that Gandalf says, tells um, Frodo that it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand when Frodo wished that you know, Bilbo had killed Gollum when he had the chance, when he encountered him in 2941. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so Gandalf wants him. And then later on in the Two Towers, when Sam says, you know, wants to get rid of because Sam has this kind of one, di- one directional relationship with Smeagol. He pretty much distrusts and hates Smeagol throughout. Frodo and Frodo and Smeagol have this kind of master-slave relationship that Hegel will be proud of. But, um, you know, Frodo wants to help him. And I think he kind of learns from what Bilbo did. And that's the other thing is that he's, he wants to help Frodo the way Bilbo helped Frodo without knowing and thinking necessarily while they were walking through the Emin Mule and the Dead Marshes. I don't know how much uh, Frodo thought about his uncle helping or not helping uh, Gollum way back when. So what I also enjoy is all the stuff that is unsaid and unspoken and unthought in these historical juxtapositions that we as readers bring, right? Um, also, what I love about Smeagol and his time, if you talk to Andy Serkis also, is just like how duplicity is externalized so well. And in that scene I talked about, just like showing the extremes of one nature is just like really, really well done. And the arc of Gollum in, in, the, in the Two Towers is just fantastic because the way he switches between Smeagol and Gollum right from that scene to him, him asking like, um, you know, when when Frodo removes that gag from um, from his neck, Smeagol realizes that he has kindness within him as well, yeah. and he decides to trust. And that kind of dialectic of trust proceeds throughout all the way to the Forbidden Pool area. A time, I mean, a Forbidden Pool a section uh, when Faramir kind of forces Frodo's hand, and you know, uh, Smeagol, like the Smeagol that was there and that was had taken over Smeagolem kind of recedes because Frodo breaks a trust and I still remember how when like how Gollum says master and like you know, it was just like very very it kind of hits you the way he mm-hmm. says it and to end on something a little bit more abstract um I mean I think about like this connect kind of connects to my love of the maps as well Tolkien makes allow us readers and viewers uh, to become very literal with how characters move and repeatedly move through the ages. And Middle Earth feels like a very tired place in some sense because so many hosts of armies and characters have, have trodden Middle Earth. And I feel like the mountains and the marshes are witness to the stench of our desperation or the reverie of our wanderings, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, and I think Gollum, even though he is light-stepped, you know, we know that Aragorn tracks him because Aragorn is like a fantastic tracker, much like Daryl in Walking Dead. And um, I think of like, he lived 500 years 
500 years and like to think of all the places he kept on walking through the dead marshes he found a way to the dead marshes um i don't know something about that like the toll that characters and journeys take on the earth through the lens of smeagol frodo and sam i don't know it's difficult to express but that touches me somehow mm-hmm. that that you know we're we're not like virtual beings we're 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 people that have impact on the lands we traverse through because of our desires and our our conflicts so our story is very much bound up with the earth and i for me like the smeagol gollum sam journey and arc through these books and the movies makes that the most clear yeah uh i i i also think that in this story, per se, having these hobbits traverse through these lands that have gone through such big changes throughout the ages also brings them in contact with that history that either directly or indirectly has affected them. I, I find it curious that it's because of them hobbits that the ring is destroyed. Um, yeah. The most unlike creature. Uh, and and they they say it for Bilbo, but it the ones who actually found the ring were Deagle and then Smeagol. So it 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 started with a Hobbit. You know these Hobbits they found the ring and either <laughs> for good or bad uh, they they kept it and they followed through. They followed yeah. through right up until the end. Um, and it, yeah. it's 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 a really cool line that you can follow right from the beginning up until the end. Um, and yes, coming coming into contact with everything that used to be there, like you mentioned, the dead marshes, is one of the things that I I really adore about this whole world building, where you have characters who are part of a specific journey. But along that journey, they come across other things that used to be part of this history and form part of a larger tapestry that has brought us to this point. In the, the Dead Marshes is one of the key places for the, the Last Alliance. Um, and many elves died there because of people who didn't want to follow Gilgalad's lead but whatever we'll not we'll not go into that right now but um it's it's mentioned when they're there and it's it's one of those things it's 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 also like uh when they um when they're traversing through the forest and they come across the trolls that are turned to stone from from uh Bilbo uh Bilbo's journey in the hobbit I found that so awesome in the movie because it's one of those things that you read it and you and you say maybe this this section could be cut out. And yes, in in the book it's it's a little longer than what we have in the movie. Um and Frodo is awake. Uh but 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 just just mentioning it in the movie and just seeing that visual is it, it just makes the world alive. It it gives this world this 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 uh, it's it's this texture that you get by looking at things that used to be there that signify something, and that characters can either recognize or relate to them. I find that fascinating. I really do. Yeah, it's all about like these objects aren't just objects because they they become symbols and they become lore. And there's this like for me like. In, in like one of the, the the lines that the film gives us in the very beginning when Galadriel says um, at the opening of the of the fellowship like history becomes legend the legend becomes myth like for me that, that those two sentences are just like kind of they still really stir me because that's how I feel like we should be telling our own history like even you know take out the fantasy of Middle Earth for a second I feel like the way to be reverential is the way that Tolkien and Peter Jackson help us to become reverential. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as, as far as adapting this work, mm-hmm. um, how, how do you feel it compares to, to the book, uh, this relationship that you were talking about? Um, what, what are yeah. some key changes or, or um, some key points that you would like to, 
to highlight? I'll mention two. Uh, well, firstly, I'll just preface by saying that like there's a lot more talk about what happened with so Gollum. You know, when when Bilbo took the ring from Gollum, um, that was like seventy seven years before the the movies. So mm-hmm. Gollum was in search for the ring. Um, like you know, after Bilbo stole it, he calls him a thief uh, for seventy seven years and. There's a lot more talk about that in the book, especially in the Council of Elrond section, uh, a chapter which is like, you know, when you're reading the book, you think the shadow of the past chapter is like, you know, mind blowing. But Council of Elrond, hello, it is fantastic. It's a lot to chew through. And like, I think the book does a great job adapting that that chapter because you couldn't give everyone's takes on it. But um, I I will say so, like, there's a lot more about what happened in Gollum in the the missing years and how Aragorn captured Gollum and took him to Mirkwood and all of that. Um, uh, I think Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and uh, Peter Jackson do a good job at the script explain this to kind of touch on it, but the book talks about it in more detail. Mm -hmm. The most interesting thing that the book, the the adaptation, like the way Tolkien structures the book is into six books in in the big trilogy. So it's like book one and book two form fellowship and book three and four form two towers and book five and six form um return of the king but frodo and frodo sam and garland's journeys um are in like all together in book four so they, the movie intercuts everything as it's, a, it's cinema it's movie storytelling that's how one should do it but it's interesting because at the end of like book four um oh sorry at the end of book three oh sorry i'm sorry end of book five i'm sorry i'm confusing now so like Pippin says the eagles are coming. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then you're like, "What's happening?" And then you were to read through the beginning to end of like that section of Frodo, Sam, and Gollum to figure out what the eagles were doing. Whereas in the movie, they just like completely intercut and they're right after each mm-hmm. other. So uh, Tolkien gives us like these giant books, uh, book length descriptions of what happens to Frodo and Sam and Gollum one after the other in chapter by chapter, whereas in the in the movie they're intercut. And I will say that the one addition that that's there in the movies that I absolutely love is Sam's speech to Frodo at the end of the two towers, when at the after the attack uh, when Frodo confronts the ring wraith. And uh, I think one of Faramir's Faramir maybe shoots the I'm sorry. They're they're in Asgiliath by this point. They're in Asgiliath. This is like on the attack on Asgiliath, the very end, and this is like after we know that the Helm's Deep battle has been won. Um, you know, Frodo is completely shaken. So Frodo and Gollum and Sam are right there, and I just want to quickly read out that speech because it's like for me one of the best speeches and best additions. Mm-hmm. The, music, the, Frodo, the Sam, music, the music is also awesome during that part. It's perfect. The music is everything is awesome. My God, the way the the ring rate kind of comes up and the camera, it's just fantastic. Uh, but so Frodo says, I can't do the Sam. Sam says, I know it's all wrong. By by right, we should not even be here, but we are. It's like, it's like in the, the great, great stories, stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? There's some good in this world, Mr. Furl. And it's worth fighting for. Right. 
like given as i'm reading this like my uh like my my choke is i mean my, my throat is choking because i think of gollum like how empathetic are we like are the filmmakers towards gollum because for a second we know after this we're going to see evil gollum throughout but he's processing the speech and the the rendering of his eyes he kind of when Frodo asks, what are we looking at? What, what, what are we holding on to? Like Gollum's eyes kind of look up towards the camera and they become almost like an extreme close up, it feels like because the eyes are so big. And when he's, when Sam says that there's, there's some good in this world and, you know, Gollum kind of looks down, um, I don't know, that moment, that's just everything to me. Like that's just like showing me that we're not just focusing on Frodo and Sam who are in charge of saving Earth, but there's still some hope to be redeemed in a character that from now on, there is no redemption for. So I don't know, something about that, the way the filmmakers chose to add that in, mm -hmm. the whole Battle of Osgiliath scene, that I think it's a treasure. All right. Um, so for, for the sake of, of our listeners, I just, I just want to really quickly define what, what we mean when we say adaptation, because it's... Some people say um, it was poorly adapted. Some people say um, that it resembles nothing like, like the novels. But it, just hear me out. Because when we talk about adapting something, um, we're talking about moving something from one medium to the other. It's two different media, and the, the, the novels are meant to be read, and that's fine. And they have so much information um, that it can't conceivably all go into a movie, which is a visual medium that you have to kind of move along visually. Um, and some some inspirations, so, some adaptations are inspired or some are suggested. But in this case, it is an adaptation where they take the actual words and they try to put them onto the screen. Um, in, in the relationship of Frodo and Sam, I think what they were able to capture, and this is also due to the actors, because they were, they were, they were very keen on this, and it's the fact that Sam sees Frodo as his master. Not as, not as just a slave and master kind of thing, but he feels that he owes Frodo his allegiance. Plain and simple. And their friendship along this journey is what makes the quest successful. If it were not for Sam's love for Frodo, the ring would not have been destroyed. And that's something that I think translates beautifully. Uh, there are some hiccups along the way, some things that the movie changed for dramatic reasons, um, especially when they're going up Kirithungol and Gollum devises a plan to kind of separate Sam from Frodo. Whatever. It's cinema. It is, like I said, it's, it's an adaptation of something that is meant to be read versus something that is meant to be something visual. So I understand why they might have kind of tinkered with that relationship but I still think that the thread that they they start sewing from the beginning with Sam and Frodo goes all the way to the end and it finishes beautifully um, we we see Sam as a hero as as he should be uh, were it not for him the ring would have been lost because once uh, uh, Shelob stabs Frodo he, t he takes the ring with with him um and he also carries frodo up mount doom so sam sam uh, sam's friendship fa sam's love uh and i want to i want to stress love it's love love that it's absolute love that that um helps him ha helps them both uh finish this quest um so yeah that's it's one of it's one yeah, of my favorite like things in, in the entire uh, in the entire books is that uh, how how that relationship goes from beginning to end and there's no breaking that bond even in the worst of times that bond 
that bond lasts even after after the movie ends because we know what happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. So in, in the books, yeah. Yeah. All right. So I want to bring this up because I find it curious. Um, it is well known that uh, Tolkien's son, Christopher Tolkien, who was his literary executor until his death in 2020, he was not happy with uh, his father's work being turned into movies. Now, in a 2012 interview with a French newspaper, Le Monde, he commented on the movies by saying, and I quote, they eviscerated the book by making it an action movie for young people aged 15 to 25. And it seems that The Hobbit will be the same kind of film. He's talking about the Hobbit movies. Uh, Tolkien has become a monster, devoured by his own popularity and absorbed into the absurdity of our time. The chasm between the beauty and seriousness of the work and what it has become has overwhelmed me. The commercialization has reduced the aesthetic and philosophical impact of the creation to nothing. There is only one solution for me, to turn my head away. End quote. You know, like the charitable side of me wants to say, if you've spent the entire, uh, like a large portion of your life devoted to working through the non-cinematic material of your, of your, of your father, like these books and texts and maps, and you're trying to kind of sort this out for the future and for the state, you may kind of take offense to anything that looks different from your activity. Mm-hmm. But come on, sir. <laughs> come on, sir. I mean, is there any adaptation that you would not take an objection to? Because it's because of the films, I would argue, and not just argue, I know as fact that we've gone back and understood and appreciated everything that you and your father have done. Yeah. We've gone to explore the Silmarillion because we loved what the movies told us about Middle Earth. The movies were making an argument about this historical world that was created. So, um, and to think of this also, this is an action movie for 15 to 25 year olds. I don't think you know the audience because it's people of all ages. It's yeah. a, this is a universal story. The fact that this is like the holy grail that Frodo has been through. And it's one of the most classical renderings of it. And to think to call it an action movie because um, of the entertainment value of it is to kind of make it's, it's, it's to kind of kind of look down on entertainment and pop culture and the reasons why we are, why we want to be told the stories that we the, the reasons why we want to be told the story that, that the way we are told them because there are scenes of action on the books that are sometimes difficult to distinguish from the rest of the prose because they just kind of come together all in kind of one kind of tone or one kind of approach. But it, it takes it takes an adaptation to another medium to kind of explain and bring out those contrasts that are there in the literary material. So that's what adaptation does. And I think there have been terrible adaptations of other films and other books and other stories, but this is one of the best adaptations. So please, like, I know you're you've passed away to the to Amman or to the <laughs> to the Undying Lands now, but like, and thank you for your contribution. But these are modern action movies. They've created and made fans of us uh, of, of many millions of people around the world. I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I I I also I I agree. I think it's a little reductionist to 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 call it that way. Um, and I I get his point of view like you said he spent his entire life uh living and breathing his father's work i get it i get it but he can't deny that because of the films people kept buying the books um i can speak for myself uh if it were not for me looking at that film poster when i came out of the multiplex I probably wouldn't have gone into borders and started eating it up. Um, so um, yeah, I, I I don't know if I agree with the whole philosophical impact of the creation reducing it to nothing, because any 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 adaptation could have made this into like he said just an action movie, but no, this this movie takes time 
to stop and breathe. There are moments where when we get to Rivendell, we see Aragorn contemplating his future. Um, when, when, we, when we're with Gollum, we also see the part of Smeagol that's there. Um, any, any other adaptation would have just gone through that so quickly that we wouldn't even understand it. Um, and, and the details, and this is very important to me, the detail that all the production departments took to, to make this world feel alive. They, they incorporated runes. They incorporated the languages that, that all these different civilizations uh, had. Um, they interpreted the way they dressed. Maybe it isn't exactly the way that it was described in the books, but again, it's an adaptation. It's a different medium. Some things work when you when you read it and, and it reads fine, but then you want something appealing on the screen that kind of works with the vision that you have for the movie. Um, yeah. And even the antagonists, right? If you look at the design of the Nazgul and the black horses, even though someone pointed out that the horses were brown, um, but in the movies, but like. It, the Nazgul, like the, the little little claw at the end of the, like the boot of the Nazgul. Like I think about like in in the near the old forest where the first time, like this amazing shot where the road gets warped. Like, yeah. You remember the shot when like yeah, yeah the, the that Spielberg shot, shot blew my mind when I saw it in two thousand and one. And then when they were hiding underneath the tree, the the boot of the Nazgul and the and the red eyes of the horse. I mean, come on, those kinds of details take a lot of time and. Jackson married those, like he empowered his departments. He asked exacting standards of them, but he kind of showed it on the screen in a way that did justice to all that craft and the detail that you're talking about. So extremely satisfying to watch. Yeah. And again, this, this is a, a, a huge epic. And you and I understand that epics have so many characters. They have, so many storylines that come and go and intersect. They have, um, we, we, we as audience have to kind of track everything that's going on. Um, and we take it for granted now. For example, we, we watch a show like Game of Thrones. And, and it's fine. You have a bunch of characters. You have a sprawling storyline. You have... Uh, amazing scenes of war it, i i don't know about you but i think that if it were not for the lord of the rings i don't think that game of thrones would be there i i i i, I, agree. I, th I think i think that not, not only in in the visual effects part of it which is obvious but in in, in the way that the narrative goes because those those movies were able to mesh the action and the story that they were trying to tell and intertwine it into something that was appealing to newcomers who had no idea what was going on and to fans like myself um so uh i think i think that Movies and TV shows. It, it's it's amazing that we're saying TV shows, because <laughs> back then we wouldn't even be talking about a TV show coming even close to the Lord of the Rings. I mean, and it's amazing how far we've come that TV is now so cinematic, right? Um, and and I think they owe it. They owe a lot to the this this adaptation in particular. Um, the the attention mm -hmm. to detail, um, and and like you were saying, the way uh, all these department heads were just at the top of their game, doing everything possible to render this world true to life, and it and that it felt lived in, um, even if it's fantasy, it still has to feel lived in in order for the audience to buy into it. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest contributions that these movies have made. I really do. Agreed.
And this concludes part one of my conversation on adapting The Lord of the Rings with Dr. Ritesh Mehta. Part two will be out soon, so don't go too far. If you would like to comment on this or any other episode, please feel free to at me on Twitter or Facebook with the handle at MeterReviewPod. Email me at MeterReviewPod at gmail.com or you can just leave a voicemail at 407-603-5847 and who knows, maybe you'll hear that message in one of our episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast feed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, reviews and star ratings are always helpful. They help uh, spread the word about Meter Review Pod and help others find us. So if you have some spare time, go ahead and click on those beautiful stars. Because all we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. And of course... Don't forget to breathe. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.